0: We've been talking a lot about waking up to the here and now. So tonight I'd like to talk about a framework that the Buddha discovered and taught in terms of what we mean, describing more clearly what we mean by waking up to the here and now. Of course when we're talking about waking up, what we mean is learning to pay attention. Learning to open to your environment, world that's going on around you, but also opening to the world within you. Beginning to pay attention to the body, over and over again coming back to the breathing of the body, learning to pay attention to the mind. Opening to things as they are. By training ourselves to allow things to be what they are. There's so much of practice here, is trying to do that over and over again, seeing if you can just allow your experience to be what it is. And through that training, what we're doing is we're discovering or creating space in the mind. And that space is clarity, a clarity of seeing. By allowing things to be what they are, we begin to see things as they are. What we mean by waking up to the here and now is beginning to wake up, wake up to the changing conditions that we face from one moment to the next. You know, life is change. Even conditions on, retre- on retreat change from one moment to the next. No sitting is the same. No walking is the same. No day is the same. No sound is the same. It's a constant stream of changing experiences, changing conditions. And so much of practice is learning how to work with those conditions. Can we learn from those conditions? Can those conditions mirror back to us something about ourselves? In fact, what the Buddha said was that it's by not seeing the nature of the conditions that we're subject to, the conditions that we're living in, by not seeing that, we suffer. In other words, not by not opening to the here and now, by not seeing it, we suffer. And what the Buddha discovered, and I think this is an interesting framework, it's a framework for insight, and I also think it's a framework for just seeing the conditioned world, you know, in a much broader way. It's really the big picture. And that's the three basic characteristics of conditioned phenomena. And the three basic characteristics are suffering, impermanence, and selflessness. I'd like to take them one at a time. It's hard to take them one at a time because they're really interrelated and interchanged, so, see how it goes. When the mind begins to settle down, you know, it starts getting a little bit more quiet, a little bit more silent, a little less invested in sort of what our self-interest is. We take a look at the world around us mm-hmm. begin to take a look at our own experience. And on this path of awareness, one insight is inevitable. It's, it can't be avoided or not seen. Of course, that's the insight or recognition of suffering. It's just too pervasive. If you look at the world around you, it's pretty obvious that it's suffering. Come on a retreat, take a look inside, and it becomes very obvious that there's suffering going on there too. It's really an insight to begin to see just how much turmoil there is, how many judgments, how much we get pushed around. By the changing conditions within the body, by the changing conditions in the mind. But this insight into suffering can't stop with just the acknowledgement of suffering. And That's too easy. Just to be, just to acknowledge that you're suffering, because a lot of the world would, would would probably have no problem with that. Sure, that there's suffering in the world and things that are going on, and there's also suffering within us, although. Most people who don't pay attention might not be aware, necessarily, of how much suffering there is going on within us, but still, it's quite an obvious truth to most people. It's not enough. It's not enough just to know that there's suffering. We need, instead, to develop a capacity to understand the nature of suffering. Not just notice that there's suffering, but we have to understand the nature. We have to understand the cause of suffering we have to taste the freedom from suffering. can't really understand suffering until you taste the freedom from suffering, the letting go of suffering. And finally, to understand the nature of suffering, you have to understand the path. You have to see very clearly for yourself. It's a very, very difficult lesson to learn. and you, One keeps learning and making mistakes and learning again but it's a process of learning what the path is. You know, you can read the Noble Eightfold Path, and I think it makes a lot of sense, and it's a good model, but it's really simply a model. If you don't walk the path, if you don't open to your experience, if you don't cultivate certain qualities like mindfulness or equanimity or loving kindness, well, then you don't really find out what leads to freedom. Might sound good, but it's not really freedom from suffering. One of the keys to understanding the nature of suffering, understanding freedom from it, understanding the path, is learning how to be with yourself. Learning how to be with yourself. And that's of course exactly what a retreat is all about. You know, obviously it's about learning to be with others, but it's really about being with yourself in relationship to others, in relationship to the conditions that you're experiencing over and over again. The mind blames the conditions for the suffering. And over and over again, we say up here, and also the Buddhist teachings point out, look at yourself. Look at what you're doing in relationship to the conditions. Because that's where the real suffering is. And that's something that you can do something about. Conditions, quite unpredictable, out of our control, constantly changing. But how we relate to them How we respond makes all the difference in the world, whether we suffer or not. But being with yourself, again, isn't easy. Why? I watch TV sometimes. It's kind of a confession, I guess, maybe in this group. Most of you are probably too pure for that. Uh, But I do watch TV. Grew up with TV and I still watch it. And I'm also kind of a closet social psychologist, so I, I sort of look at sort of expressions in society and sort of try to understand it from a social psychological perspective. Anyways, I find commercials kind of interesting. I mean, sometimes they can drive me completely insane, uh, but other times one will catch my interest and, and I learn something from it. And there's been this commercial that has been just a constant on TV for the last six months or so. And it's this commercial with this very attractive uh, celebrity actress um, is selling cell phone service. Verizon or something, I don't know. And she's a well-known person. And there's this commercial where she's, she just kind of appears in the post office. And before she appears, there's this um, there's a whole long line waiting in the post office to mail their packages and letters. And, it, and the camera focuses on, on everybody's face. And you can just see everybody is major major duca, major suffering. Like nobody wants to be in this line. There's people drifting off into space. There's people agitated and angry and impatient. And then there's this one guy who's just a ball of restlessness. He's just standing in line just waiting for the, to get through this line. And so she snaps her fingers that they can do, and freezes everything, everybody freezes, and then she walks up to this young guy and puts a cell phone in his pocket. And then she snaps her fingers again, and everybody comes back to life. And then he looks down, sees the cell phone, not not really that surprised, (laughs) but he... (laughs) This definitely isn't real life, okay? Finds the cell phone, immediately, of course he knows what to do with it, he flips it open, and he dials as fast as he can and he dials his friend who's watching TV. And his friend is watching a sporting event. And then, then they start getting into this whole dialogue and, and the friend is reporting back to him what he's seeing on, on, on TV. And all of a sudden the guy is very excited and happy. You know, and you can see him in line and he's just thrilled that he's been able to make this connection with his friend. And, you know, we watch that and we think, well, you know, it's kind of an absurd commercial. But really there's a message in that. And, of course, the message is trying to sell cell phones is a means of <laughs> happiness. Uh, but there's an underlying message than just cell phone use is that we, when we're suffering, when we don't like the set of conditions that we're in, let's get out of here as fast as we can. And, and with the cell phone, he can keep staying in line and get his job done, but, he, but inwardly he can go somewhere else. And that somewhere else is always better than where you are. Where his friend, in other words, is watching TV, that's much better than just standing in line wasting your time. And so we get that message. When we feel uncomfortable, you know, or we feel that there's something wrong, or or we're feeling agitated, or restless, or bored, or dull, or disinterested, this culture is just tremendous at creating the seductive power to move away from that experience and move into somewhere else. Not the here and now. See, the here and now is not good. It's the next moment. That's where happiness is. It's in that striving for the next moment. And so we learn that in the here and that, that the here and now is incomplete. That it's incomplete. And really, what that's pointing to is that we're incomplete. So there's a lot of teaching even in commercials. You can learn a lot. We can see how, how when we begin to pay attention to our life, which is of course what practice is about and what we've been talking about ever since we got here, as the mind begins to open and and see more clearly, one discovers that one suffers because of how one relates to things, how one reacts to things, becomes very, very clear. If you're quiet, if you're noticing what you're doing and how how, how you're living your life, a couple of good examples for me lately was recently I got caught uh, got the flu, and I hadn't had a cold or flu in like I don't know years, um, so of course it caught me by surprise and, and I was sick for about two weeks, and for me two weeks that was a really long two weeks, uh, and so there's there's that condition. So now I'm working with the conditions of having a flu. So how to be with those conditions, how to practice with those conditions, okay? I'm living with conditions that I don't want. You know, I wouldn't choo- choose to be in these conditions, but there's really nothing much I can do about it. I'm, doing, you know, I'm engaged in every process possible while it's happening to try to make it better, uh, but it still follows its course. You know, it has laws uh, that it's following. So how to be in those conditions and not suffer so much. Okay, so, one of the, so what you start doing is you start paying attention. You start feeling the physical sensations, okay, and you start noticing them, and uh, maybe you notice that they're kind of impermanent, but that really doesn't do much, actually, Uh, (laughs) really. Watching a pulsating headache is not much better than watching a solid headache, actually. Uh, Or watching the subtle details of a sore throat. (laughs) Eh, you know, (laughs) that's not really where it's at. (laughs) Rather, practice is about what I'm doing with all that stuff. You know, so much of it is, is that. What am I doing with that? And of course, what I was doing was, you know, sort of my ego was getting involved at times, thinking, you know, how, you know I really take care of myself, and I, I was really getting in good shape, and, and how come this happened? And you could see that there was some identification with being a healthy person. Uh, there was some blaming going on, you know, that maybe I did something wrong, or, or I shouldn't have done this, or I should have done that. Um, there was definitely resistance. You know, there was resistance to the, the experience itself. There was the unpleasantness. That I couldn't do anything about, really. But then there's the resistance. See, that's, that's, that's where the real suffering starts kicking in. You know, and that's the place that I know I can do something about. And so what I try to do, what we wanna to try to do, when we confront difficult conditions, might not be an illness, it might be a, a terrible, you know, painful state of mind or a painful sensation in the body, what we wanna do is to see if we can bring some mindfulness to our reactions, and so that's what I'm doing. I'm paying attention to my reactions. I'm watching my pride, my anger, my impatience. This thing lasts two weeks. You know, I'm thinking every day I wake up, I think I'm gonna wake up and I'm gonna be better. You know, so I have expectations, and I keep getting disappointed, and then I have expectations, and then I get disappointed. Then I get discouraged. Ah, this thing's never gonna go away. And it was kinda just before I came on a retreat that I finally just totally, you don't have to worry, uh, I'm not <laughs> infectious. It's, I'm, it's all gone, it was all gone when I got here. But, you know, it, there was worrying about the future. You know, am I gonna be healthy enough for the retreat, what that's gonna be like, take some energy, and uh, I don't wanna go in. Uh, maybe I have, Larry can do this on his own. Uh, <laughs> that was actually the best idea I had. <laughs> that made me feel better. Um, but, fortunately I did get better. And uh, it, it passed. And so, noticing the fact that, you know, now I'm feeling healthy and strong again, you know? So paying attention to all of that, noticing the illness, seeing that it really was an impermanent experience, it's helpful to see that. But, it's, but the real work is when you don't see that, when the, when the mind isn't allowing, and you, you're bumping up against all your beliefs and ideas of how things should be or how they shouldn't be. And so the practice, you know, even if you've been practicing for a zillion years, The practice, those shoulds and shouldn'ts come up all the time, and so the practice is to be mindful of them, because if you can be aware of them, you don't reinforce them. You can let them go. And quite often, I would see that reaction, and being mindful of it helped a lot, because then I didn't have to pile on. I didn't have to really get behind the reaction and turn it into some kind of conviction or some kind of harsh judgment, either about myself or being ill or, or any of that. You can soften. You can soften. And there's a lot of lessons in being sick. I mean, I, you know, one thing I saw was it really strips away things. You know, it strips away a lot of the inessential, it strips away a lot of the pretension that we can kind of accumulate. You know, feeling confident and competent and clever. You, you don't really feel that competent, clever, <laughs> smart, or bright when you're that sick. You know, you just want to get through it. You know, you just wanna take care of your basics. You don't make all those calls and pick up your cell phone and all that. You know, you just, you just wanna be with it. That's all you can be. I've got about 10 examples <laughs> of Watching your reactions to difficult conditions, and they've all been recent. Uh, so I won't bore you. But just one that probably a lot of folks here can relate to, just in the context of a retreat. Um, I mean, everyday life is a constant unfolding of conditions that are challenging. At least that's what I find anyway. Um, you know, conditions that disappoint you, or challenge you, or push you, or things aren't the way they're supposed to be. Uh, going downtown today, I have to use this example, it's too good. Going downtown today, I tried to squeeze in an errand and drop off something at the post office, and, and I needed to be back for the 815 sitting. So uh, my agenda was to go and get it done very quickly, and that meant driving quickly, but the roads are extremely bumpy. Uh, so you pay a price if you go fast, and the price is your car, basically, <laughs> and a sense of well-being. Uh, so the faster I went, you know, I have to keep jamming my brakes and slowing down, and, and Eventually I got, wise well, that why don't you just slow down? Uh, you're gonna get there but maybe a minute later, but uh, you're not gonna be hitting all these potholes and bumps. Uh, so that was awareness. Um, and then I get down to the post, I get downtown, and not only was the post office closed, it wasn't there. <laughs> <laughs> the post office that I've known for 25 years is no longer the post office. <laughs> it has a sign on the door saying it's up for lease. <laughs> So I run over to the convenience store, and I know the lady down there a little bit, just from coming up here, and she works there regularly. And I said, where's the post office? <laughs> and she said, well, it's moved about a mile down the street. And I realized by then, just, I have no time. I, I can't get there. So I let that go. Um, then I say to her, well, is there a mailbox around? And she says, no, <laughs> that there are no mailboxes downtown. And I say, you've got to be kidding. And there's the reaction, right? <laughs> the reaction is, you know, there's gotta be a mailbox in downtown Barry. She said, no, they took all the mailboxes out. They're, the only place you can mail your letter is in the post office. <laughs> so my practice was simply to let go. And actually I had a very enjoyable conversation with a woman about sort of why the post office closed and you know, how you can get rural delivery and, and you can mail things from your home, and that's how, what most people do, and uh, it was, you know, it was an interesting experience, but you can see that you always get these expectations. You think things are going to go a certain way, and then they don't, and you can't control that, uh, but you can work with the things that come up, you know, even with the bumps in the road, I was thinking, well, the town should do something about that, and then I talked to staff person later, and they said, well, the town has no money, you know, it's broke, so it can't do anything about it, so, you know, it's... One thing after the next, in <laughs> practice, but being mindful of those reactions, you know, it makes life—it gives a juice to life. You know, instead of being attached to the agenda, and, and your whole job is to get that thing mailed. It didn't need to be mailed today. In fact, the staff mailed it for me. They they take your letters for you. I didn't know that. Um, <laughs> so I went through that, whole, and it wasn't for nothing. There really was something happened. Something good came out of that. At least that's what I think. It might be my conditioning, but I definitely think something good came out of that trip. So learning to let go of our conditioned reactions. It's really the path to freedom. Second characteristic is impermanence extremely related to the first, of suffering. Because by not seeing that conditioned experiences, you know, whether it's the environment, or whether it's uh, the universe within the body and mind, not seeing that these conditioned experiences are impermanent, that's what's causing us suffering. I'll get to that. Once again, we can know something's impermanent intellectually. You know, I mean, everybody, like just talk, let's talk the world, for instance, or our environment. You know, just about everybody in the world would uh, recognize, maybe not, they may not be in touch with it on an ongoing basis, they may not be aware of it, they're concerned about other things, but certainly when uh, most people, if they pay attention to the world, you notice that governments, I mean, the older I get, the more I see this, governments, Countries, cultures, values, people, events, constantly in a state of flux and change. You know, we get angry about current conditions, but they always change. The world is always in a constant state of change. Nature, the environment, just being here four or five days. You know, you really see it on retreat, up close. You're in touch with the environment more in the silence. See the days change. One day is really cold, the next day is warm. Nights are different, days are different. Uh, Sunsets, rises. Constant state of change, seasons change, skies change, climate changes, the environment is in a constant state of change. Very obvious when we look at the world outside us. But the world within us, it's a little bit more difficult to see the impermanent nature of it. And the reason it is because we tend to identify with the body and we tend to identify with the mind. We take it, it's what we are. We take it as something solid, quite often and we're conditioned to identify with it. Mm-hmm. And so, what that does, unfortunately for us, is that it, it creates the separation. You know, we construct a self out of that, and I'll get to that in a minute. Taking a look at the body up close. That's really a lot of what retreat is about, you know, is this investigation into the body. You know, taking a look at the breathing, taking a look at body sensations, being aware of pleasant sensations when they arise, or uh, unpleasant physical sensations when they arise. Uh, you know, a lot of retreat is investigating that. And you can see when you start paying attention in a sustained way, if you don't see it now, you'll see it eventually if you continue the practice, you'll, you begin to, to experience the body more and more as an energy system. Larry mentioned that the other night. The body is an energy system. And you can really begin to see that in a very direct way. You know, that there's this energy system, there's this constant state of flux and change uh, happening within the body. The breathing is constantly changing. The sensations in the body are in constant, a constant state of change. We're beginning to see things clearly when we see that. That doesn't mean, you know, by noticing that the body is changing, that doesn't mean that, you know, sometimes people get a misconception about where Buddhism goes or where meditation goes. They think, well, you know, it means. That if you see it, that it's all, the body's always changing, and you know that that there's, that there's some kind of devaluing of that process. You know, there's a devaluing of the body, maybe uh, you know a lack of appreciation, or maybe we don't take care of it as much. And that's not true. That's the extreme. The Buddha talked about that, sort of punishing the body and not taking care of it. Rather, I think the insight that comes out of seeing the, the changing nature of the body, and as I grow older, I, I see it more and more, is you see how precious life is. You know how fleeting it is. For those of you who are significantly younger than me, um, life goes by very quickly. It really does; it goes by extremely quickly. You know, 20, 30 years ago, I started practicing. 30 years ago, and to me, it went by really, really quick. You know, 30 years blip. And maybe if I'm lucky, I have another 30. I don't know, but it goes by quick. Uh, so appreciate it. Relating to the here and now means that you're appreciating what you have, you're appreciating the conditions that you're living in. Take advantage of that. And the best way to take advantage of it, of course, is to wake up, to live life fully. So seeing the impermanent nature of the body, to me, leads eventually to freedom. Opening to pleasure and pain. Sometimes we think of meditation as simply opening to pain. It's not it's also learning how to open to pleasure when you're in the here and now and the more present you are actually the more you notice or the more you become aware of pleasant experiences you know the more you open you are to pleasure the more you can actually enjoy pleasure if you're in the present if you're paying attention to the experiences that you're having you know they're impermanent but they're they they they're, they're what's happening right now they're in the here and now and so learning to open to pleasure, learning to open to pain, be with that experience. Meditation doesn't strip that away. It doesn't strip pleasure away. It really enhances it a lot of, the way, a lot of times because you're, you're more there, You're more able to open and experience it fully. So when you experience a pleasant mental state, maybe you've experienced you know, a couple of moments, of uh, pleasant mental states, of feelings of calm and peace, you know, enjoy it. That's what I say. Enjoy it, but don't cling. Don't cling. When you eat, taste the food. You know, sometimes we get so preoccupied that we miss pleasure. You know, we miss things that we could enjoy because we're worried or we're somewhere else. The same with pain. You know, we're so conditioned to avoid it, to run away from it and it's the avoiding and running away that really is the source of our suffering. So learning how to open to pain, you know, learning how to work with it skillfully, with wisdom, or with compassion, that's what leads to freedom. Avoid Trying to avoid pain definitely isn't freedom. You know, When we try to avoid pain, what we're doing is we're cutting off part of life. We talk about relating to life as a whole. Well, to do that, one has to be open to pain. It's part of life. You know, it's not good, not bad. It's just, you you can't live in the here and now. You can't live your life without being exposed to some unpleasantness. And learning to open to that leads to a lot of relaxation. You develop confidence, really, when you learn to open to both pleasure and pain without clinging or pushing them away. You know, then the mind can really begin to relax. That's when you really start feeling some confidence. When you don't have to live your life avoiding pain or live your life clinging to some pleasurable experience that you had 10 years ago. just creates tension in the mind, trying to hold on. The pleasant experiences will come, and they'll go. That's relating to the here and now. That's relating to the conditions that we're subject to. That's living in the world, living living our lives, is being open to all of these changing phenomena. Seeing the impermanent nature of thoughts, emotions, moods, it's essential, essential. And again, the reason it's so important is because there's a strong tendency to identify. When you're feeling really sleepy, for the fourth sitting in a row, there's a lot of identification with that state of mind. We're not seeing it as impermanent, Quite often we're seeing it as a permanent state We're identifying, we're taking it as something solid. We're taking it as me or mine. Paying attention to it allows us to begin to open up to the mental state, the emotion, the mood that we're experiencing. We begin also to see that on an energy level. When you can begin to see thought as energy, not separate, a changing condition the changing internal condition, different thoughts, emotions, moods, reactions, they're all conditions that the mind is subject to. Again, if we can meet emotions, moods, mind states, reactions, painful thoughts, if we can meet them with mindfulness, rather than identifying with them, you know, simply allowing them to be there and be aware as they're occurring, be awake to how they express themselves. If we can do that, that's, what, that's how we let go of our suffering around those states of mind. And we can literally let them pass through. Just like a, a storm cloud or clouds passing through the sky, literally one can experience one's emotions, moods, mind states exactly that way. Just like an energy, a wind, or a fog. Whatever the characteristic is, just passing through. just Passing through, part of nature. Yeah, part of nature, just like you can't control what's going on out there. The mind is subject to so much, coming and going. So many ideas, thoughts, fantasies, worries, anxiety. Learning to work with those is learning to work with the conditions that we live in. And the conditions are those states of mind. And again, if we react for or against, if we reject that fear or anxiety, if we think we shouldn't have that experience, we're adding another layer of suffering onto that energy of anxiety or fear. You know, fear is unpleasant, no doubt about it, but if we reject it when it comes up, if we don't try to work with it with some degree of wisdom, some degree of uh, awareness or lightness, trying to allow for that energy to be there, if we don't do that, we suffer. If we do it with more awareness, we suffer less. It's The key. And so where that leads us, this ability to work with things that way, where that leads us is to more and more equanimity. When those mind states, those emotions, those reactions, those moods, those physical pain, And those things begin to arise. We know we've seen it. You've seen sleepiness 15, 20 times in sittings. There may still be some resistance to it, but also there may be a little bit more acceptance, allowance for it. You know, that's really, in many ways, the first couple days of a retreat. The biggest difference between old yogis, people who've been practicing for all, and new ones, is that there's much greater equanimity with people who have been practicing for a while. A lot of what everybody's experiencing is the same. Same states of mind, the same restlessness, the same boredom. It's not like you're an old yogi and you hit the cushion and you're just thrilled. You know, and it's just great. Even if you've been practicing a long time. You know, there's this process that every, almost everybody goes through. It varies, for sure. But their relationship, as one matures in practice, one relationship becomes more balanced around these experiences. There's more space around that experience. There's more space around all these emotions and moods that come and go. Uh, There's more allowing of that experience and more patience. And that develops with practice, naturally, out of practice. It's not that they're special and you're new and so you're not special. It's that they've practiced with these things. They've seen them come and go a lot, a lot. And because of that, there's greater relaxation around it. And that's the kind of peace that we want. We want a peace. You know, there's no doubt about it. We want peace and happiness. I mean, if the practice didn't go that direction, it would be useless. So it does go in that direction. But the direction it goes in is towards unconditioned peace. In other words, it's peace within the field of changing experiences. And think about that. You know, that's just a tremendous strength to have. In other words, wherever you go, you discover freedom. The conditions become your practice. You know, they become the gateway to being liberated. So wherever you go, whatever you go, and sometimes the more difficult it is, the more that liberates you. The more disappointed you get, the more liberated you can be. Because you see that you've got an agenda, and you get a chance to let it go. And you're happy to let it go, because you know it's just bringing you suffering. That's, as practice matures, that's how we begin to see things. We take responsibility for our happiness. We take responsibility for our unhappiness, not with blaming or identifying with it, but we begin to see that there's something we can do in relationship to the conditions that we're subject to. There's ways of relating to it, there's ways of working with it that can lead to liberation and not suffering. We see that very directly for ourselves. Otherwise, there wouldn't be as many people here. You know, This place wouldn't be open if it didn't work that way. People wouldn't keep coming back if it didn't lead to freedom. You know, people do keep coming back. Believe it or not, Uh, they do. Um, Okay, getting towards the end of my time slot. Uh, We got the third characteristic, Uh, (laughs) selflessness. It's an easy one. Everybody gets that one, right? Me too, huh? Okay. Uh, Okay, five minute version. We talk a lot about the importance of bringing fresh attention to the here and now, to the conditions that you're in. And you know, there's a reason for that, why we emphasize that so much. And that's because the practice, the path of awareness, so much of it is a process of letting go of your assumptions, letting go of the things that you take for granted, and instead relating to the things as they are now here. You know those assumptions, those ideas about who we are, for instance. It's a huge assumption that we carry around with us. We take for granted that there's a self, and we hear selflessness and we shake. Oh, no self, no self. Can't. It's got to be a self. Um, no. There doesn't actually have to be a self. In fact, it's liberating to let go of the self. You don't have to do anything. You, know, you don't have to get rid of the self. It's not a question of getting rid of anything. It's a question of getting to understand the nature of what we call the self, what we assume to be the self. And It really means just simply taking a look at your experience very directly and very clearly. When you take a look at the body, Take a look at pleasant feelings, unpleasant feelings. You take a look at perceptions, how they change all the time. You take a look at mental states, emotions, moods. You take a look at consciousness. They're all all things that we often take as self, especially consciousness. You know, I said the other night, and I just want to remind everybody, you know, there's, a, there's often a tendency, you know, we can, well, what happens with the self thing is that we can look at the body, we can see it's changing, and we say, there's well, there's no self in that, And we can look at mental states and emotions and moods and we can say, well, there's no self in that, I know that, I've been practicing a long time, I see that they always change. But underlying often, uh, there's an underlying identification or assumption that the observer of all these conditions, the observer of that reaction, the observer of the breathing, that that's who we are where the the self is really the observer, the knower. And that's a deep-seated conviction and belief that we have, a deep assumption that we are the observer. How else could we know if we weren't the observer? There's gotta be there, somebody there who's observing. Most of us really believe that. There's gotta be somebody there. How else would we know who's telling us what to do? gotta be yourself. But really, what happens in practice, you don't have to believe this, but when you begin to practice and go more fully into the here and now, when you begin to just pay attention and wake up to what you're doing, uh, the observer begins to lose its power. You actually begin to forget about the observer. It's really a wonderful freedom that we find, you know, practice doesn't lead to self-consciousness, like you're always conscious of what you're doing kind of thing, you know, there's always somebody watching. That would be pretty restrictive, I think, if it went that way, it wouldn't be very relaxing or much fun, Um, practice is actually a lot of fun sometimes, Uh, there's a lot of joy in practice, but there's this belief, a conviction, that we are the observer, we are the knower, And gradually, we begin to let that go. The more powerful the awareness becomes, the more clear the mind becomes, the more you connect in a very direct way with your experience, and you just begin to forget yourself. It's like when you become intimate with something. There's a letting go, sort of letting down the barriers. There's a forgetting that I'm listening to this person. I'm in dialogue with this person. If it's intimate communication, there's a dropping away of those ideas, of those boundaries, of those concepts, and there's just communication, you know, there's just energy. You know, there's just whatever it is, is, that's what it is. And there's knowing of it, for sure, but there's not the knower sitting there knowing. There's just that letting go. Why, to me, selflessness, Guess why I don't see it, one reason anyways, that I don't see it as such a difficult kind of thing to get behind or to see, is that to believe in a self is actually more difficult in a way. To believe in something that's solid and unchanging and fixed, that there's this solid, unchanging, fixed self, that to me is harder to believe. Because what that means is that the selves, you, 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 and me, we're separate from nature. That's what that means. In other words, we all know that nature is in a constant state of change. Whatever it is, this building is nature, the trees, the governments, everything is, is nature. Okay. So if we're gonna say, okay, well there's this self, this little hidden self in there that doesn't change, stays solid, that's fixed, that's who I am. Well, what are we doing? We're, we're constructing something that's separate from nature. We're, make, we're creating this separation between us and the rest of the world. You know, we're living, I think, in delusion. I mean, it's very convincing delusion, for sure. But we are living in delusion. We're not separate from nature. Nobody in this room is separate from nature. And that's really the three characteristics that are really pointing to that fact. It's the big picture. There are, of course, many differences, and everybody is subject to different conditions. No doubt about it, twins are born, they change. They go different ways. They're subject to different conditions. So we are subject to different conditions and we are different. But also we are, we have a lot in common. And one thing that we all here and outside of here has in common is that we're all part of nature. And to me that's indisputable. We have to be part of nature, how could we not be? And so what that implies You don't have to believe this, but what it implies is that we are in a constant state of change. And the self that we think uh, is there is also in a constant state of change. And again, just because there may be no self, it doesn't mean that you don't take care of yourself. Sounds contradictory, but you do. You take care of yourself. You have to take care of your emotional well-being. You have to take care of your physical well-being. There are boundaries. Selflessness, emptiness, you know, it's such a misunderstanding of emptiness and it's understandable. But, you know, it doesn't mean everything goes or that, you know, you can do anything you want to anybody because there's no self doing something to no self. Uh, try that and you'll end up in a no self prison, uh, creating a lot of no self bad karma, uh, which is all true. There are a lot of no selves in prisons too, unfortunately, for them. So, Selflessness, just nature, just nature, that's all. And again, when we learn to relate to the here and now, these things gradually become quite apparent. It's not about believing in the three characteristics or any of that, it's just, that's, that's what conditions reveal to us. And when we pay attention to them, when we don't get pushed around by conditions, when we work with conditions with some awareness, uh, it leads to unconditioned freedom. And unconditioned freedom is something you have to earn. It's something you have to earn. Nobody's gonna give it to you, nobody can give it to you. Um, and it usually doesn't happen in a six day retreat. It's a lifetime, uh, but a six day retreat or seven day retreat is a good start. Okay. Let's sit for a minute.